want to tell you, uh, as we begin to look at this, about three families that I met this past week. All on the train, two are from Cambridge. The first was uh, a young scientist who was going down to work in Cambridge from Aberdeen. He was with his wife and his six-month-old child, and we began talking about different things. And of course, he asked, what do you do? And you tell them. They try and find another seat, but they're stuck with you. They're sitting beside you on the train. And uh, I very, very much enjoyed talking with them. And uh, hopefully that young man will, I recommended a couple of books to him uh, to read about the relationship between science and religion. Then on the way back, I was in the carriage, uh, and it was really squashed. It was Friday night, Friday night. And the family I sat beside uh, were from Dundee. So we had the pleasure of our company all the way from Doncaster, which is one of the most depressing places on earth. And I'm sorry if you're from Doncaster, but Doncaster Railway Station. I'm sure Doncaster itself is lovely, but Doncaster Railway Station is awful. And uh, I sat down with him from Doncaster, and just for me, a typical nice Dundee family, a uh, young girl who was just absolutely lovely, and her parents, and again... Uh, the husband was a salesman, the woman worked at, the wife worked at the university, and uh, I, uh, again, when I said what I did, that was also a, a little bit of a, a strange reaction for them. We talked about different things, it was just good, and I just had this frustrating experience of so wanting to be able to share the gospel with them, and yet knowing that it would have been very difficult to do so, and they'd been very suspicious of me. Uh, and I tried to invite them to church and so on. And finally, there was another family, uh, uh, an African family. And as we got off the train, this is racial stereotyping, but I thought, I'll bet you they're Christians, and I'll bet you they go to the Nigerian church in Dundee, regime church of God. So I just went up and asked them, and she said, oh, yes. I said, hello, I'm, I'm David. I'm a pastor. Now, you see, you can't do that with Scottish people. But I walked into the pa- oh, Pastor David, nice to meet you. We go to the redeemed church of God. And I just thought, yeah, I got that one right. But what intrigued me about, the only reason I mention all that is, I just thought, isn't it strange that in many, many countries in the world, you can go and you can talk about the Bible, but in this country, you know that people are going to perceive you as being really strange and weird. And there is a real famine of hearing the word of the Lord, a real need in our land. It is a desperate need. And I, I'm, I'm just incredibly burdened by it. But how will people hear? If the church has political power, no. If we do miracles, probably not. If we adapt this program or that program, probably not. How will they hear, says Paul to the Romans, unless someone tells them? And here, in this parable, Jesus is talking to his disciples about people hearing the word. And, and we're going to look at this and see how it impacts upon us communicating the word. Now, it may be that you're here and you're not a Christian and you're, you're kind of puzzled by this, especially you may have the reaction of uh, some of the people when the disciples asked him about parables and he says, you may be ever seeing but never perceiving. Well, I hope that you will be able to perceive and to see. Um, if you are a Christian, then I hope that you will understand the significance and the importance of what we are looking at here. 
Now, a little bit, this story, the way I've prepared this is sometimes preparing a sermon is like preparing a meal. Well, this one's a sandwich, okay? It's a club sandwich. It's got a thick piece of bread either side. In between, there's some meaty stuff, and then there's an ingredient that's a little bit suspect that if your taste buds are not quite sharpened, you're going to struggle with this one, okay? Because the, the bread is, in verse 1 and verse 20, the Word of God, the teaching of Jesus Christ, the meat, if you like, is the story that Jesus tells about how that is spread, and the suspect ingredient, the bitter ingredient almost, is His definition of a parable, which is not the definition that we are normally uh, told, and is one that makes us feel distinctly uncomfortable. So, let's begin with the first slice in verse 1. Jesus began to teach by the lake. Now, much of Jesus' teaching had been done in the synagogue, and here it's recorded He begins His teaching in the lake. I think a very simple observation that I'll just make in passing is that Jesus was prepared to use new methods. My favorite quote about that is John Wesley, when he was asked by Whitfield to come and preach in the open air, said this in his diary, I could scarcely reconcile myself at first to this strange way having been all my life till lately so tenacious at every point relating to decency and order that I should have thought the saving of souls almost a sin if it had not been done in a church. I think one of the amazing things about Christ's ministry is the amount of ways He used to reach people with the gospel. He always adapted Himself to circumstances, and in this, in this particular story, He indicates how the Word is communicated. There are far too many Christians who lament the fact that people do not come to hear the Word of God. We're not thinking straight, because why should they? They see no significance in the Word of God at all. And the very thing that would grab them, it's a kind of catch-22. The very thing that would grab people is the Word of God. The very thing that would convince them that they need to hear the Word of God is the Word of God but they're not going to come and hear the Word of God unless they first hear the Word of God. I know that sounds a bit circular, and it is. But that is why we need to go and to communicate the Word of God to people. And we need to think how to do it. How do we get people interested in the Bible so that they'll say, I'd like to hear more about this, and then uh, they will come and hear God's Word. The crowd was so great here that Jesus had to get into a boat, and He sat on it out in the lake and taught the people. Now, it's a well-known parable. The parable is uh, also taught in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 13, in more detail, and in Luke chapter 8 and verse 1. This, by the way, is also the first parable that is told at length and in detail. Now, let me say something about the parable itself, and in particular, verses uh, 10, 11, and 12, where, and 13, where the disciples asked Jesus or, uh, about the parables. And He tells them, verse 11, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside, everything is said in parables, so that, and then citing Isaiah 6, verses 9 and 10, they may be ever seeing, but never perceiving, ever hearing, but never understanding, otherwise they might turn and be forgiven." What is a parable? This is a difficult, these are difficult verses, and I want to get these ones uh, out of the way first, if you like, or to consider what they're saying. 
A parable is not an allegory. An allegory is like pilgrim's progress, where every detail has some spiritual significance. A parable is not that at all. There are sometimes details in parables that you would come and you would look at, and you'd say, I wonder what that means, I wonder what that means, and it means nothing. It's like you say, there was a man with a red hat. What does it mean? It means there was a man with a red hat. That's, it's, it's not got any particular meaning. It's the story that conveys the message. Now, from that, you can, aspects of the story, you can see how things work out, but you don't necessarily take every single detail. When Jesus was telling this parable, it's highly likely that as He was sitting in the boat teaching the crowd, He was able to gesture to the Galilean hills, and people would know that there were farmers who were out just sowing their seed, throwing their seed on the hillside. What's the point of the parable? Well, it's to do with the mystery of the kingdom. The secret of the kingdom, verse 11, has been given to you. In the Greek religions, a candidate would undergo preparation, purification, fasting, and so on, so that they could then get special instruction as to the inner meaning of the story. Then the story would kind of be acted out as a kind of passion play. You would understand it. You would have an ecstatic experience. That was only for initiates. There was a secret. In other words, the religions were being offered. Here's a religion, there's a secret, and the secret must be revealed. There's a riddle that must be explained. A person or truth that would have remained unknown had not God revealed him or it. A revealed or open secret is one of the the definitions of that. Now, what Jesus is teaching here is that this particular parable, and perhaps many of His parables, were not actually designed for people who weren't interested in Him, to explain things to non-believers so that they would grasp it, but they were really designed for His disciples so that the person who's given their heart to Jesus will grasp His teaching. It's like I was uh, speaking at an event in, in Cambridge on Wednesday evening, There'd be no point in me saying to the people who were there, many of whom weren't Christians, all you non-Christians here, let me tell you the parable of the sower, and let me explain how hard your hearts are, and so on. It's a parable that helps me understand what is happening, but it's not for, for them. In Psalm 25, verse 14, we just sang that, the Lord confides in those who fear Him, He makes His covenant known to them. God's work in Jesus is a secret only in that it can be recognized by a God-given faith. I've told some of you before of of, uh, an atheist who was converted through the Dawkins website and disputes I had with him. Um, His name is Richard Morgan. I met him this week down in London on Monday. He was recording a program giving his testimony, and I was there, and the presenter was asking him questions beforehand to get him ready for it, and asking how he was converted, and how he became a Christian, and who was involved, and what happened when, and so on. And at one point, Richard, who's full of mischief, and I absolutely loved him, he he looked at the presenter and he said, am I allowed to mention the Holy Spirit? Because I do believe he had something to do with it. I just thought, that was wonderful. I understand there is this thing called regeneration. And it was just wonderful to hear him, him say that, actually. Because what he said to his fellow atheist who was on the program with him for ex- uh, Richard, of course, now an ex-atheist, he said, look, you won't grasp this unless God... He said, what happened to me was, he said, it was just very simple. He said, no argument that David used. 
It was very simple. He said, the love of God was poured out in my heart by the Holy Spirit. It's just a great way to describe it. Well, I think that what Jesus is saying here is, look, this teaching was for His disciples. Those out with wouldn't get it. They would be confused by it. This quote from Isaiah is, is telling us that the, this teaching about the Word of God was not for people who did not accept the Word of God. They could not accept it. But also, it is describing the reaction of many people. In spite of all their looking and all their listening, some people will not really understand or see. Otherwise, it says they would turn and be forgiven. It's almost as though Jesus is saying, I'm talking to a brick wall. And what He really is saying is the parables are not enough. We need to explain. We need to teach. But the Holy Spirit is absolutely essential in communicating the gospel to those who are dead in sin and to those whose minds are biased and prejudiced against it. I think Jesus uh, is… this parable really is, is almost like a key to all the other parables. He's saying it is about sowing the Word, but it's God who gives the increase and prepares the heart. So, let's look at the, the parable itself, the sowing of the seed. The sower is, of course, Jesus, and by extension, any of His people. And the seed is, of course, the Word of God. He explains that. He, tells his, he teaches His disciple in this way. He tells them this story. I mean, in a way, you could say all Jesus needed to do was give from verse 14 onwards. Why does He tell His disciples a story in this way? Because Jesus wants to make us listen. He wanted these people to hear. They didn't have to, and sometimes people will listen to stories a whole lot more than if you just give them a whole straight set of um, presuppositions or, or, or prepositions. I know that. You should, if you come up here with my eyes sometime, and when I, I notice that your eyes are beginning to get heavy and full… Uh, I, I start saying, let me tell you a story, and you wake up. That's just the way it is. Now, teaching that's only just stories is pointless, but teaching without stories and illustration is, to be honest, is really boring. If even Jesus needed to use stories, then everyone else does uh, as well, I think. This was a, a familiar rabbinic method of teaching as well. It was an idea where you take abstract ideas and make them concrete. What is beauty? Well, what Jesus does is, here's beauty. You show a beautiful person. What is goodness? There's a good person. The other thing with using this kind of story is that Jesus is getting people to think for themselves. He does not do all the thinking for you. He's saying this is serious. He wants men and women to think. And not, he's not just going to come and say, this is it. It does need to be a personal discovery. We can learn truth. We can make it ours. We can appropriate it for ourselves. Now, in this particular story, as you look at it and you question it and you think about it, there is just so much that comes out of it, and I'm, I'm not going to be able to go into it all. But let me just say a couple of things about the methodology. Firstly, in terms of the communication of the Word of God, you will, know that it is, you will notice that it is scattered. It's not as though the farmer plows a particular furrow and then goes or digs a particular hole and puts the seed in that one and then in that one and then in that one. The method of sowing, there, there was that method 
in that culture, but the main method of sowing was just to go out, to throw the seed, and to see what happened with it. That may seem uh, not a very fruitful method of farming. A lot of seed would be lost to the birds. A lot of seed would be lost to weeds. Why not prepare the ground beforehand? Why not plant your seed only in particular places? Well, those are good questions, and they're questions that apply to us when it comes to communicating the Bible. I was teaching a course in Cambridge this week, and I was on communicating the gospel, and one of the church leaders there said, it seems to me that there are people who will never ever believe, so why don't we concentrate on those who will? Not waste our resources on people who will never believe. The answer to that, you should know the answer to that, is simply, we don't know. We don't know who is going to believe. We cannot target people. We cannot prepare people, if you like. We, we should not aim at specific groups. Oh, the Chinese are very open to the gospel just now. Let's go for them. Or young people, let's go for them. Or older people, let's go for them. We scatter the seed of the Word of God because we do not know how God will respond. We spread it everywhere, not just in church. And that's why this is so important, because those of you who are Christians, there will be dozens of people you will meet this week who in some way, I hope you will be able, in some sense, to communicate something of the Word of God, not because you know that the person you are speaking to is just about to become a Christian, or you think that they're going to listen to every one of your arguments, but because it is the Word of God, and because that can make… who knows what God will do with it? I think what Jesus does here as well is He begins where people are. He started from the here and now to get to the there and then. He starts with the things that people can see in order to get them to the invisible. Let's come back to those folks on the train. Do you think they really would have listened? And would I really have been faithful if I'd said to the young family from Dundee, you know, I'm a minister and I'd like to tell you about Jesus Christ? What would their reaction have been? I think they would have stood in the train rather than, rather than sit beside me with that. How do you get from where they are to where you would like to be able to communicate or to what you would like to be able to communicate? And that's really, really difficult. It's really hard. But part of the encouragement for me is just simply this. I don't feel that I have to communicate all the gospel, nor that I can communicate all the gospel in five minutes or even in a four-hour train journey. It's something that you put drippings, if you like, of the Word of God and pray that the Holy Spirit will use that. I think what Jesus does here is fascinating because He expects people, in a sense, to see God at work all around Him, all around them, rather, in the normal and in the everyday. And that's the trick for us, to be able to connect the Word of God with people's everyday life. The fact is that most people consider religion something or Christianity stroke religion, something which is totally alien to their everyday life. And maybe one of the things that we have to do with people is when you first meet with people is they have to realize that you are not some kind of religious freak who's, you know, about to chop their heads off or plant a bomb or, or who has the glazed look over the face. They have to connect you with, with normality as well. He begins where people are. I, I, as you know, I debate a lot of people and discuss with a lot of people. 
I always find it intriguing that sometimes when people actually meet you after they've been discussing with you theory and concepts and ideas, that when they meet you, they go, oh, you're completely different from what I thought. No, it's a great, sorry for giving you another quote from this week. I, I, think, I still haven't worked this quote out. Maybe some of you can explain it. Um, a man stood up in, Cambridge, in, in Borders in Cambridge at the end of the, the talk and discussion we had there. And he said, David, you are a really annoying person. Now, some of you will understand that, but can you understand this? He said, I don't like you, but you're very likable. And I'm still trying to work out what that actually means. But what he, he spoke to me privately afterwards, and, and one of the things that, that struck me was truth is something that is communicated through personality and through people as well. And there are a lot of barriers that people have that are emotional barriers or personal barriers that are nothing actually to do with logical reason or truth. And somehow we have to pray that God would use that to help us overcome. I think it requires a great deal of sensitivity. These kind of stories that Jesus told, the impression I get anyway is that they were spontaneous and unrehearsed, that they were a reaction to a situation, not carefully thought out stories worked out in a study. I think to tell parables like this or to connect with people like this, you need, as one man puts it, the sensitivity of a poet and the skills of a debater and the courage of a soldier. In a way, for us to communicate the gospel, for you to be able to communicate the gospel, you need to be able to look at the circumstances around you and the circumstances of the people around you and say, how does that fit in with the Bible? How does that connect? What is the connect point there? And you can find it. There are in this story as well, there's just one other thing I want to say in this regard is that there's there's only one of the four types of ground that proved fruitful. Does that mean the farmer was to blame? Well, obviously not. The farmer didn't know. In a sense, what he's doing is he's giving it all the same chance. That's what I was saying earlier is, is wrong with the notion of picking on particular people. It's, uh, we don't know what is good soil, and I want to, to stress that again. We don't know what's going to happen. I was encouraged last night or this morning uh, to get an email from a debate I had in Brighton where there was a man there who stood up and asked me all kinds of questions and made all kinds of personal comments. And there's a theme emerging here who also told me in public that he didn't like me and he didn't like my talk and that I was really annoying and so on. But we did actually, after the meeting, he invited me to go and have a drink with him and some of his friends, and continue the discussion. He turned up at church the following night. I was utterly amazed to get a, an email from him this morning in which I would have put him down as one of these people who's never going to listen. His mind's made up. He doesn't want to be confused with facts. And this is what he wrote to me this morning. It's been a very interesting experience listening to you and reading the discussion from the other side. I gave him Ravi Zacharias's book as well, and he was talking about that. I think some of my atheist friends are worried about me because I have a newfound sympathy for Christianity. I've made an effort to start reading the Bible, and though I am a very slow reader, I'm currently at Genesis 28, and I started reading a month or so ago. I'm going to have to tell him to skip around a wee bit, or he's going to really get bogged down in numbers. <laughs> but 
and I started reading a month or so ago, but hey, at least it means I'm doing something useful while sat on the toilet, I'm starting to see how convincing it is. My problem thus far is that it's still all very convenient, and there's so little justification for so many of God's actions that I can't take its moral structure seriously. Maybe that will change as I read, though. Now, here's the, here's the key thing with that, is here's somebody, if I was looking at him, I would have said, now, what's the point? There's no point in arguing with this guy. There's no point in discussing. He's, he's not, he doesn't show an openness to the gospel. And yet, he's the guy who's writing me saying, all right, he's reading the Bible. He's reading it wrong. He's reading the AV. He's pondering through starting at Genesis 28. He's sitting, reading it while he's on the toilet, he says, you know. And I'm thinking, that's not the way to do it. And yet, he says, I'm starting to see how convincing it all is. Now, that's nothing to do with me, nothing to do with my argument, nothing to do even with his circumstances, really. It's to do with God being at work. Who knows? You scatter the seed, and who knows? We, we've got to have much more confidence as Christians in the Word of God, that it is living, that it is the living and enduring Word of God, and that it does produce a crop. Now, get into the, the details of the parable itself and the four types of soil, and, and you'll see what's involved, and obviously each one of us is one of these types of soil. There's the hard heart, the stony ground. Fields in Palestine were in long, narrow strips which were divided by grass paths, which in turn were rights of way. This is not, he's not really just going out and throwing it almost, um, you know, on, on just, on, just on rocks. How it was done was these long strips, and then there were paths, and these were often, became very, very stony. As the people walked on these, these paths, they became hardened. As the sower scattered his seed, some would fall on the hard ground. There are people for whom Christian truth finds no entry. They are indifferent. They think it's irrelevant. Even here, it may be. Even in church, there are people who hear sermons which are God's Word. No, I'm not talking about hearing rubbish. I'm not talking about hearing um, non-biblical teaching. I'm talking about hearing God's Word being taught, but they pay no attention to them as soon as they get home. In fact, even before they get out the door, it's forgotten. In fact, it just it goes in one ear if it gets in there at all and goes immediately through the empty space out the other ear. Ezekiel 33 verse 32 puts it beautifully. You are to them like a lovely song sung with a beautiful voice and played well on an instrument, for they hear your words but refuse to practice them. It's almost scary to think that people can go to a good Bible-teaching church where they hear the Word of God again and again and again and again. And it's just, it's like water off a duck's back. It just makes no impact whatsoever. You know, having a, a cold heart, having a stony heart, is just really just the worst situation to be in. If you've got a cold heart, a stony heart, you've got a heart of stone, you're dead. You don't feel any pain. You don't feel any of the struggles that other people feel when they're looking at the Word of God, but not because you're alive, not because you've got it sorted, but because you're dead. And sometimes we sow God's Word, and it falls on a hard heart, and we, we, we pray that God would break and melt the hardest heart. But then there's the shallow heart, the, the rocky ground, not one that's just full of rocks, but a narrow skin of earth over a shelf of limestone rock, which was the, 
very familiar pattern in Palestine, and certainly in Galilee. Much of Galilee was like that. The soil was shallow. It was there. The seed would germinate, but it would not grow. It had no nourishment or moisture. The plant, sorry, would not grow is not right. It would grow quickly, but the noon sun would kill it. And what Jesus is saying there is that there are people who are willing to listen. More than that, they receive it with joy. They go, oh, that was great. Great sermon, vicar. Or great, you know, really enjoyed that. Really like this church. Really like the teaching. But they have no root, and they last only a short time. They immediately receive the word, says Jesus. But when trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. This is not what I thought it would be. I didn't think life was going to be like this. I thought I would hear these wonderful words of God, and everything would be great. And now I'm in trouble, and now I'm being persecuted. I'm out of here. Trouble or persecution are the real test of whether your faith is real, not doctrine or ecstatic experience. It's why when Christians, when we, we, we do this, we mean it really, really well. We try and put the seed in an incubator. We're like these, you know, these um, massive strawberry things, these big tents and so on. We're uh, creating these conditions which help the strawberries to go when the weather's not that great. What we try and do is we try, well, we need to protect these people. We need to, and uh, we sometimes mollycoddle young Christians or protect them and say, no, no, we don't want you to experience this, and we don't want you to read about this, we don't want you to hear this, and we want to keep you separate from the world, and so on. The trouble is that when they then go out into the world, when you think that they're ready because they've never been tested, they immediately fall away. You need to count the cost before you begin. You need to go deep. There is no point starting off with shallow Christianity and then saying, well, We'll make it deeper later. It's like the cut flower. It has no root and lasts only for a short time. You go buy your flowers out of Tesco's and Asda's or the flower shop or whatever, and, and they look great and they're fantastic. But in a week's time, they wither. And that's like so much of our Christianity. It looks fantastic. It looks great. There's a real buzz. We like the Word. We receive it with enthusiasm, but there's no real work of conversion, no real depth. Old things have not yet passed away. Everything has not yet been made new. Please beware of shallowness. Now, that's not asking that when you become a Christian, you grasp everything or understand everything or whatever, but this is something serious. This is something real. This is something that is deep, and we need depth. Then there's the third group is the preoccupied heart. In terms of thorns, the Palestinian farmer was lazy very often. He would cut the tops of the weeds but leave the roots in. The field might look clean, but the weeds come up and choke it. He basically gets a strimmer and strims it and says, oh, my field looks good. It looked good. But the weeds come back up again. And here Jesus tells us this now, there's some dispute. Is this person who receives the word like this, are they a Christian? I actually think, yes, they are. I think that's what it's teaching, and I've witnessed it so many times in my own life and in other people's lives. Here's what happens. The word takes root in your life. The word does go deep in. You are converted. You are changed. But the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desire for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. 
Life is full of worry and pleasure, both equally dangerous. The cares, the constant anxiety about worldly affairs, we just, the fruit of the Word never comes out in our life because we are so busy worrying. The deceitfulness of wealth, if only I had more, then I would be happy. The desires for other things, possessions, power, pleasure. 1 John 2.16, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the vain glory of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Now, this is really important again, because it may be that one reason you are not experiencing and I am not experiencing fruit in my life is because of the complexity of life. It may be that um, it's not that I need to prioritize, it's that I need to get reprioritize, it's I need to get the main things right. Bishop Ryle puts it beautifully, he says, to go so far and yet go no further, to see so much and yet not see at all to approve so much and yet not to give Christ the heart. This is indeed most deplorable. And it may be that one of the difficulties we then face is that we're actually not sure if we're Christians or not because we've lost sight. We've lost that love and that fire and that passion. It's an awesome thought to think that God's Word has been nullified because of His people's behavior. They nullify, says Paul in Romans, they nullify the Word of God by their behavior. Paul tells us in his letter to the Corinthians that everywhere he goes, the perfume of Christ is being spread. To some we are the fragrance of life, to others we are the stench of death. But what some of us have done is we are so obsessed with ourselves, we are so freaked out by our own worries, or so yearning after our own pleasures and our own security, that what we've done is we've put the bottle top on top of this bottle of perfume that is the fragrance of Christ, that is the Word of God, and nobody gets a whiff of it. Nobody gets the stench, and nobody gets the perfume. Nobody gets the beauty. And it's no wonder that we are unfruitful. I cannot believe the Word of God is, 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 to me, absolutely clear on this, that everywhere God's Spirit is at work and every heart that comes to know Jesus is a ripple effect, more and more people are then drawn to Christ. And that's what the fourth one is, the responsive heart. Those who listen, who accept, and who act bear fruit. We need to hear. We need to listen. Here again is a big problem. We are so concerned about putting forward our own opinions and our own concerns and our own thoughts that we have no time to listen. But Jesus says, listen. You've got ears. Listen. We must receive it. When something comes into your eye, I was cycling the other day and something came into the eye, the eye your eye instinctively closes. I think that's like the mind as well. When something fresh comes into our mind, if we've got closed minds, we just instantly try and shut it out. And we need to put it into action. The good hearers welcome the Word so that the devil cannot snatch it away. They welcome it deeply so that trouble and persecution will not drive it away. They welcome it wholeheartedly so that other concerns do not stifle it. Now, this is way beyond the intellectual. It includes conduct and commitment and devotion. The good soil in Galilee was like the soil on the Black Isle. 
If you know where the Black Isle is up in the Highlands, the reason it's called the Black Isle is not because of the sinfulness of the people there or because some people think they're secretly cold or because it never snows there. The reason it's called the Black Isle is because it's so fertile. The soil is so fertile. Well, that was like the soil in Galilee. It was recommended to be fertile, recognized to be fertile. There are different crops, but there is always a harvest. Now, that's the same, surely, with the believer as God. See, this, this is why when we talk about evangelism, when you come and you hear God's Word, for me, this is evangelism as well, teaching God's Word, because if you grasp it and you get hold of it, it takes root, it will bear fruit. I guess this is just the, this is the final bit, the other slice, the other bit of bread. If, if we begin by saying that the first slice is Jesus' teaching, well, the second slice is Jesus' teaching multiplied up to 100 times. What is multiplied? It is the, the Word of God. When you grasp, when you become a Christian, when you grasp the truth, you cannot help but spread it. In Acts, we're told that they went everywhere gossiping the gospel. The seed is sown in your heart, and it produces fruit massively. Now, again, I ask you simply, what fruit has been shown this week? Always be ready, says Peter, to give an answer for the hope that you have a reason for the hope that you have in you. Now, I think what Jesus was doing here as, a, as He was telling this story, He was really enacting the parable. He was talking about what was actually happening. As I've been telling you this, this is God's Word, and this parable has been enacted. We haven't had a wee drama up at the front to show it. We've had a real-life drama going on. You are listening to it in one of these four ways. Is your heart hard? Are you a shallow person when it comes to spiritual things? Are you self-indulgent? Are you open? Are you deep? Are you God-centered? Are you discouraged? Personally, I think we should be really encouraged by all of this because, our, well, I think our circumstances are a little like the disciples. They could well have been at a low point. The initial excitement of John the Baptist, the initial excitement of their call, the early, early miracles, but now they're being faced with opposition from the religious leaders, Jesus' family thinking He's gone mad, and now they don't even understand what He's saying. Why doesn't Jesus make it easier? Paul says, I want to know Christ and Him crucified. I think it's very similar to us, at least for me it is, in that there are, we go through periods in life when things are really blessed and things are really growing and developing personally and collectively. And there have, been, there have been and continue to be real encouragements in the church here. But when I look and I see the state of the church in Scotland, when I look and I see the state of the city of Dundee, when I look and see the incredible ignorance that exists amongst so many people, I just keep thinking, I can't, we can't do anything about this. How can we possibly reach people? I can't even reach my own friends. How can we possibly reach beyond that? And you come to the Word of God, and it's so realistic. And it so just fits the situation. It is an encouragement to us. The Word of God is living and active. It will not return to God empty. It will achieve the purpose for which He sent it. We do not control the gospel or its effects. And when we actually realize this is beyond me, this is beyond us. What can we do? The situation is hopeless. It's in actually at that point that the situation becomes very hopeful because we realize we're not, we can't do it anyway. We're not the people to do it. It is God who does it. 
and he's given us this seed. And it's almost this incredible thing that everywhere we scatter it, there will be these four responses. Your faith, says Paul to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 2.5, does not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. So, let's ensure that we have open and receptive hearts to the Word of God, and let's pray that it will bear fruit some 30, some 60, some 100 times. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You that our faith does not rest on our wisdom, but on Your power. We thank You that Your Word is so powerful, and we ask that it would work in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds, that we may be doers as well as hearers of the Word. Forgive us, O Lord, when the deceitfulness of wealth, the worries of this life, press down and choke Your Word. Release us from these things. Enable us to rejoice in Your goodness. And may You guide and help each one of us in Your name. Amen.